Hello, Redeemer Church. Uh, thanks, Tricia, for reading that long passage for us. Um, I don't know how many of you have greeted each other good morning today. I have uh, made a mistake, but it's good to be here this evening. It's good to see your faces from up here. If you are meeting me for the first time, my name is Samuel Iwuchuku, um, and it's always a joy, both a joy and a privilege for me. Every time I, I have the rare privilege of standing before you and opening God's word with you, and, and that's not necessarily because you are sitting and hearing me, but also because of the grace of God that is at work, both in my life and in your lives, that we could gather here and hear God speak to us. Isn't that a beautiful thing? As a church, we have been going through the book of Romans. Uh, For the last two Sundays, Pastor Dave has preached through Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 to 32. So if you are new with us, I would encourage you to uh, look at our website at redeemerdubai.com and take time to listen to those sermons. And if you missed the two sermons, please, uh, take time to listen to it, because what, we, what we've seen in the book of Romans, chapter 1, is how sinful we are. Not only are we sinful, we are in need of a grace. And I'm hoping that as, as Pastor Dave preached those two sermons, that, that you are able to identify areas of sin struggle in your own life. He went through a list of 21 sins last week. I, I hope you, you find some sin that is very pe- peculiar to you. Or even if you don't find anyone, I hope you, you use that moment to examine your own heart and ask, where have I been falling short of God's glory? But not only that, I am hoping that you were able to confess your sins to God. Because we have a God who is faithful and just to hear us. I was able to do the same. I was able to examine my heart as he was preaching, and and I see the sin of not trusting God enough, being worried about what tomorrow looks like or what the next four years or five years will look like. And it reveals in my heart that, yes, though I know God, but I need to know him the more. The sin of not trusting him enough. And I confessed So I'm hoping that you were able to do that. Because our text today is is very crucial to this. It's it's a crucial text not just because we, we are able to see that God loves us and has given us a means of grace. But it's also crucial to the life and ministry of Jesus himself. We are looking at a passage in the book of Isaiah that you can easily consider the the climax of the the prophecy in the book of Isaiah. If there is anything called a double prophet, I think Isaiah can easily be qualified as that. But even beyond that, you look at Isaiah 61, you see that it's a passage that sits almost between what the old covenant looks like and what the new one, or what we can be looking forward to, But the ultimate reason that I feel like as we are seated here today, 
we can look at Isaiah 61 and rejoice. And we can praise God because of what he has done for us. He has given us the good news. We can gladly claim as a recipient of this good news that Christ brought. And that good news is that the salvation is here again today. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, please listen. Salvation is here today. Christ has come in fulfillment of the scriptures. Our confidence is that if Christ has fulfilled what is needed to be fulfilled in Isaiah 61, that there is hope that he is going to fulfill whatever is left. The scriptures are true. It can be trusted. God's word can be trusted. So my prayer for us today is that as we, as we rejoice in what Christ has done and as we look forward to what he is yet to do, that we would see what impact that good news is making in our life. Let me pray for us before we look at our text. Let's pray. Father, you are a loving God. You are a merciful, gracious Slow to anger. You have not, you've not really dealt with us as we deserve. So we can look and say, you are in Christ. You are our portion. You are our Lord. You have made lines to fall in pleasant places for us because of what Christ has done. So we are praying this evening as we look at your word that your spirit would speak to us not just our head knowledge, but to speak to our heart so that at the end we'll have every reason to say you are God indeed. We'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If I ask you today, why are you here? What would be your answer? What are you doing here today? See, while preparing for this sermon, I can't count how many times I had to stop to reflect on why am, I, why am I doing this? Why am I even qualified to bring God's word and preach? Why are you here? Now, perhaps you have come uh, by invitation from a colleague or you have come by invitation from a family member. And I'm praising God for that. And I want you to praise God for those who have brought you here today. But I want you to also take time and ask yourself, why am I here? What has brought me to church today? And not only do I want you to ask yourself that question, I want us to be able to answer that. Right? Perhaps this is a difficult season in your life where you have come and you are hoping that your prayers would be answered today. Or you have some issues in your life that you are asking God for. And I'm promising you, our God is a God who listens and he hears. He is able and capable to provide, to heal, to restore. I want you to know that, that God is able to do all of that. But most importantly... I have a good news for you. You see, more than thinking of God as the God who meets us in our physical need, 
He is also a savior who is ready to care for our spiritual need. He is a savior who has come to save us from our sin. And I will make the call again. If you have not put your faith in him, please do so. And if you are already a follower of Christ, I want you to rejoice. Rejoice because what we are going to be looking at this text, what we are going to be looking at this evening in our text, is the mission of Christ and how he has brought you here today. You see, at the time when God revealed himself to Isaiah and appointed him for the prophetic mission, God told him beforehand, you see, the people whom you are going to be speaking to, they won't be listening to you. They won't listen to you. They will hear, but they will not listen because of their disobedience. Because of their disobedience, God said, they are going to go into exile. Their homes would be deserted and desolate, but he also promised to step in. He promised to bring hope. He promised to bring restoration to his people. He promised to bring salvation. So we are seeing a good God who, regardless of the sin in your heart, has brought you. This evening, as we look at Isaiah 61, 1-11, we will begin to see how the prophet Isaiah speaks prophetically about the Messiah that is to come. Not only is our chapter devoted to this Messiah, but it's also devoted to the kingdom the Messiah is going to establish. There is a common trend in all of the resources I had used to prepare for this text, and everyone has tagged it. It is the year of the Lord's favor. That's usually what this text is called. It's titled the year of the Lord's favor, and it's not just a, a title that is picked up from nowhere. It is important because it reminds God's people of the promise God has made. It's a reminder to his people. In Leviticus chapter 25, you could read from verse 5 to 22, God was already preparing his people for this prophecy that we are going to be looking at. And he, he was preparing them by establishing what you could call the year of jubilee. At every 50th year in Israel's life, they will experience what I call a reset. This is a time when God's people would have to press the reset button. All slaves will be free. The properties that are used as a collateral will be given back to the original owners. Those who are held captives will be set free. And all of this will be done at no cost. It is the year of jubilee. It's the year of favor. And it is centered around God's goodness to his people. It is centered around his salvation and restoration and his redemption to his people. And Isaiah 61 helps us to see how this year of favor that is established by a good God is a pointer to Christ. The Messiah who will come as the permanent favor to God's people. 
But we know that Christ has not only come for the Israelites of the Old Testament. He has come for you and I. For you and I on this side of the border. God has sent his son for us. In fact, if you look at the Gospels, you see the disciples and the people at the time of Jesus, they, they struggled to accept this. They struggled to accept him as the Messiah because of the picture of what they have about Isaiah chapter 60 and 61. In anticipation of this prophecy, they were looking forward to a more glorious kingdom that will be established, that the whole world would gather and Christ will rule in power and splendor. As true as that is, they completely overlooked the other prophecies that says he would die for his people. He will be despised. He will be beaten. He will be mocked. He will be wounded for our transgression. And he will be bruised for our iniquity. But Jesus understood this. He understood that his first coming, he was not coming to reign and rule. At least not in the way the people of, of the apostles thought of. But he was coming to lay down his life for his people. The first thing God said to his people, if you look at Isaiah chapter 56, is to keep justice and, and do righteousness. And in the, in the next four chapters, 56 to 59, we see their failure. They failed in upholding and being the righteousness that God wants them to be. God desired that they would faithfully demonstrate his character, but they failed repeatedly, again and again. If you read Isaiah 60, 21, God's promise that your people shall be all righteous. But the question is, if the people who continue to fail God, at every time they feel like they are failed, how are these ones going to be the righteous one? Because we see them failing in several locations. How are they going to be the righteous one? How is this going to happen? Because as far as we know, the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 must happen. But we see that God is going to do what his people are unable to do for themselves. So if you are taking notes, this is going to be a, a three-point sermon. Uh, I, will, I will read out the main idea and I will follow that by the three points. And we'll take time to walk through those points. So if you're taking note, here is our main idea. We respond in joyful worship because of God's restorative hope for us that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And our first point is Jesus is the bearer of good news as well as the good in the news. I will repeat that. Jesus is the bearer of the good news as well as the good in the news. And our second point is the good news is the news of hope and restoration. And the third point is we respond in praise and worship to this good news. So let's look at our first point. Jesus is the bearer of the good news as well as the good in the news. 
verse 1 to 3 of our text, we see how God will fulfill his promise through Jesus. God's plan, mediated by the Spirit regarding the Anointed One, is disclosed. We'll see that in verse 1 to 3. But another thing I would want to point our attention to is, this is not a class, this is not a preaching on Trinity, but you would immediately see the work of the triune God in that first verse. The work of the Father, the, the Son, and the Spirit. So if you are hoping and looking for another proof text to speak to someone about the Trinity, here you have it. But as we go back to that text, one crucial question we want to ask ourselves is this. Who is speaking? Who is the subject of this text? On whom does this text hinge on? And if you ever find yourself reading the book of Isaiah, I would encourage you to ask this question every time you read it. It's a prophetic book that sometimes it can be tricky for you to know who is speaking at what time. So I want you to always ask the question, whenever you are reading each verse or chapter, who is speaking? God, in his wisdom, gave Isaiah this prophecy to address Israel's idol at different time and in different season in their life. But in verse 1, three times we see the personal pronoun, me. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he has sent me. That's what we read from the text. But one giveaway clue for us in verse 1 is that the Spirit of the Lord rests upon this person. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me. So we see that the individual in verse 1 knows God personally. And he is empowered by God to do the work of God. But in the life of the Israel nation, this is not their first time of hearing about being anointed. Right? Their first two kings, Saul and David, we are also blessed with the Spirit's ministry. They, they were anointed by the prophet Samuel with oil. Similarly, the person of Isaiah 61 is also anointed on whom the Spirit is upon, but only this time the Lord anoints him to be Israel's king. God himself anoints him. I'm going to be reading chapter 11, uh, verse 1, and chapter 42, verse 1, so that we'll see how the prophet speaks of this person that we are talking about. Isaiah 11, 1 to 2, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So whoever we are talking about here, we see the Davidic line. Jesse, who was the father of David, we see that this person is from the Davidic line. 
Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delight. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. This person is referred to as a servant. And what are we getting at here? What we are getting at is that this individual is the servant king. The prophet Isaiah has spoken about. He is a sovereign servant who is the Lord of all. And within the context of our passage, he is the divine warrior, as we see in chapter 59 and 63. But as New Testament readers, we know his name, don't we? His name is Jesus. He is the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one Isaiah prophesied about. You see, the Greek equivalent for the word Messiah is Christos, which is Christ, and that means the anointed one. So to answer the question of who is being prophesied about, it is Jesus Christ. Let's not forget, this is Isaiah days, not the days of Jesus, but here Jesus is being prophesied about as the anointed one. He is the one who is going to bring salvation to his people. He is the bearer of the good news and the good in the news itself. He is Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. How else do we know this? You see, Jesus, on on what happened to be his first public uh, 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 reading, as we could call it, uh, when he visited the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, uh, that brother Joey read for us, as they handed him the scroll to read, he rolled it up and found a place where the same word of Isaiah 61, 1 to 3 were written. And he read. Let me read it again for us. Luke chapter 4, 18 to 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, and then you read for that in verse 20 to 21. He said, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one. I am the servant king who is the servant of all the servants and the ruler of all. This is Jesus' claim. I am the anointed one. And for Jesus to make this claim in Luke, pointing back to Isaiah, means that if this were not true, do you know what that means for us? That we are wasting our time here. But because it is true, Christ our Savior, the bearer of the news and the subject of the news, has fulfilled the scripture. In your presence today, this scripture is fulfilled. He manifested himself in person to the listeners in the synagogue. He revealed himself to us by the power of the Spirit in the scriptures. 
And for those who believe and receive this good news, the news of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we are saved. We are saved. And we, are, we have the indwelling of the Spirit in us. And as a church, we are gathered together today in worship of what he has done. And if you are still trying to answer the question why you are here today, that's your answer. The good news has brought you here. You are here because of Christ. There is no coincidence with him. If you are a follower of Christ, the good news brought you here today so that you can worship him in truth and in spirit. And if you are not yet a follower of Christ, the good news is being presented to you again today. Remember, Israel couldn't save themselves. So you can't save yourself. Repent and put your trust in him. He is the savior. He is the good news. He is the news itself. So having identified the, the anointed one in verse 1 to 3, we begin to see what he is what he is anointed to do, we begin to see the ministry of Jesus. Seven verbs in these verses helps us to see this. He came to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and his vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, and to, com- to provide a complete reversal of their situation by giving them a beautiful hairdress instead of ashes. This is Jesus' ministry. One thing to note is that our text falls into the context of, you know, of the prophecy following the return of God's people from exile. They had been in exile for more than 15 years serving other people. So by the time they would be returning to their home, it would already be laid in desolate. Other people would have been living there. And it wouldn't be the sight they want to see. And the harsh reality was that it was going to be a hard labor for them to start rebuilding the city again. So they probably needed the comforting word from Isaiah 61. They need that, to hear the reassuring word of that good news that someone is going to help them to rebuild the city. As encouraging as it will be for the people in Isaiah day, we, we know if we study further the missional statement of Christ, we know that it is it is more than just physical rebuilding. There's a spiritual factor to it. We see that as important as it is to note that Jesus cares and provides for the poor. He desires to mend the brokenhearted. He desires to comfort those who mourn and free the captives. We cannot, we cannot but help also to see that more than physical needs there is a spiritual importance to his mission. So when you look at the details of the good news in verse 1, you notice that it can only be 
the good news of salvation. The salvation won by God's servant for his people. The poor can only be those who are spiritually poor. Those who mourn can only be those who are grieving over the spiritual condition of Israel. And the comfort they receive is the opposite of the wrath, which is the salvation. And in the later part of our study, we'll see the result of Messiah's work. What will be said of the recipient of his salvation? It says they will be called the ox of righteousness. A commentary points out that the oak tree represents strength and beauty. See, the mighty oak tree draws from the soil it is planted in and grows and grows until it is strong enough and those roots become immovable. Strong winds would come and storms would come, but they can no longer sway the oak tree. For its roots is as strong as the foundation it's planted in. And that is what God did for us. He saved us to establish us in himself. The solid rock on whom we stand. He planted us in himself so that nothing, nothing can take us away from him. Nothing can sway us or move us from him. We can be grounded firmly. If you are a follower of Christ, you want to know that you are firmly grounded in Christ. You are depending on him for every source and nutrient you need to flourish. It is not your work. It is the work of Christ in you. See, another interesting fact about the oak tree is that it's, it's visible to all. I was on Israel trip uh, with some of the GTS students, and I was able to see what an oak tree looks like. It's visible, quite visible to all. You see, God will plant his people as a righteous tree to flourish and live for his glory. These verses further claim that Jesus came not just as a social worker, but as the one who would save his people. The one who came to seek and save the lost. We would see him. And you look at the later part of verse 3, it gives us another reason why the, anoint, the, the reason the anointed one has come to save his people. It is so that his name may be glorified. Church, God has planted us in Christ for the glory of his name. Not your glory, not my glory, but the glory of his name. For his name to be made known. That is why whatever ministry endeavor you find yourself doing, whether it's a volunteering work, or you are serving in practical ministry, or you're doing GTS, it is for the glory of his name. It is for God. It is not for you and I. Hence, when you approach them, you approach it with humility, 
knowing that the work which you have called to do is the work that Christ has put in you and grounded you in himself. You cannot save yourself. How then do you think that you can do the work yourself? It is God who is at work in you. Whatever win, good news you have in your ministry life, it is God's work. It is God who is at work in and through you. God wants to glorify himself through your testimony, the testimony of your salvation. He wants his name to be known. As you are planted in him, as we derive our source of joy in him, and as we join hands with others as oaks of righteousness, his desire is that we may be a faithful, humble representation, representative of him on this earth. So that when the world see us, or see our work, they glorify the Father. You are planted for the glory of his name. So the point here is it's clear, right? It's a, it's a gospel proclamation of who Christ is. That though there is pain in this broken, in this broken world, but there will be a final restored hope, and that he's the one who is walking all of that. So let me ask, are you... Are you here brokenhearted? Are you enslaved to, to sin? Let me tell you again, Christ has brought freedom and liberty for you. He has promised to make you an oak of righteousness. He promised to make you an oak of righteousness. And you will glorify his name. This good news is a news of hope. And restoration. And that's our second point. The good news is the news of hope and restoration. See, when God restored Israel to their land, they, they would have to rebuild their homes, as we said. The society and the land, they would have to rebuild, you know, the homes and, and the temples. As, though, as much as God would see to it that their material blessings as God's children, as God's people who is, return, who is returning from exile... Is restored. That's his promise. Because God's promise to his people is that there would be a rebuilding of the ancient ruins, a restoration of the city of Judah, a repair of the ruined surrounding city that have laid waste for many generations. Then there will be a flourishing time in which both the Jews and the Gentiles will live together peacefully in one community, but it will be a city where God's people will have authority over. Because strangers and foreigners will serve them. They shall be called priests and ministers of God. The prophecy to Israel is a reassuring message that they will again enjoy, this is God's promise, they will again enjoy their rights as the firstborn son. Right? We'll read that in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, verse 17. The right to the double portion is reserved for the firstborn son. And then you read in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, we see God declaring to Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. And as we said, for those who are planted as hooks of righteousness, 
we know that the mission of God is more than that. It's more than material blessings. It's about the rebuilding that will happen to God's people because of God's work in verse 1 to 3. The anointed one who is going to bring the good news, the good news of Christ, the good news about himself. Because when God plants you, friends, you would flourish. If God plants you as an oak of righteousness, you will flourish. But the heart of, of this point actually comes in verse 7 to 8, where the blessing becomes relational, right? The God of justice then commits himself relationally with his people. If you notice the repeated word there, everlasting, in verse 7 and 8, you see that the everlasting joy of verse 7 flows directly from the everlasting covenant of verse 8. And this is so because the promise of God to his people is only guaranteed by God's character himself. Friends, our everlasting joy cannot be derived from the fleeting things of this world. It's not permanent. They are temporary, but, the old, but only God's everlasting covenant would produce the everlasting joy in us. Don't pursue life apart from God. It's going to leave you empty. Pursue life with God. Because only in him would you find satisfaction. Not in the fleeting things of this world. They may look satisfying for the moment, but in the next minute you are wanting. It leaves you wanting for more. There is only one satisfying uh, character, and it is Christ. And our third point says we respond. How do we respond to this good news, to this restorative hope of Christ? What should be our response? This is actually a very practical application that we get from the text itself. We really don't need to look anywhere else for application. As believers, what is our response? Let me ask you, what's your response when you hear good news? You are excited. We all want to hear good news. No one wants to hear bad news. You want to hear that, yes, that which you have been hoping for has come true. Some of us are looking for a job. You want to hear that the interview you went for is successful. We want good news. Isn't it true? Because our response to good news is often a joyful response. Because we are relieved and pleased at the moment. It feels like all the problem of the world is solved. But we know it's temporary because the next minute we are looking for good news in another area of life. You feel like the problem you have is job until you have the job and then you think of something else where you want to hear good news from. That is who we are. We can never be satisfied with the earthly possession. They will leave us wanting for more and for more. That's why when we think of where we find our satisfaction, we go back to the scriptures, the good news himself. The good news that Christ has brought for us is once and for all. 
He doesn't leave us wanting. Rather, he calls for our response. Right? Because when you look at verse 10 to 11, one thing you notice about the writer is that the, the, the tone of his writing moves to more of response. What the anointed king has done for us and what he would do through us, what should be our response? The response is to rejoice in the Lord and exalt his name. That is the application of our text. And if you're asking, why should I rejoice? Look at it. Because he has clothed me, you and I, with a garment of salvation. He has covered us with a robe of righteousness. That is why you should rejoice. That is why your response should be praise to his name. It is not, especially when you look at it, that it is not your righteousness that was given. It is an imputation of Christ's righteousness. It is a righteousness Christ himself is and has given to us. His righteousness is credited to us. So you rejoice. Rejoice in your salvation, friends. Rejoice because when God sees you now, he sees perfection. Not your perfection. He sees perfection not because you are perfect or you are a perfect Christian. I don't know if there is any word like that. But he sees perfection because of Christ who is in you. Remember, you are planted in Christ. That is who God sees. I know we, we enjoy taking credit for our works. I'm sorry if this is a bad news. But it is Christ's work. It is Christ's work. It is what he has done with us, for us and he has done through us. So our response is to worship. We worship him. We worship him. I'm going to give you one more reason why you worship, and then we'll close. See, you, another reason that why it's important that our response should be praise and, and, and worship, and we'll rejoice in what Christ has done, is because we are no longer afraid of the day of vengeance. You see, as, as Jesus read Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 to 19, he read that prophecy to the point of the year of the Lord's favor, and then he wrote up the scroll. But when you look at verse 2 in Isaiah 61, you will notice that after the proclamation of the year of, of the favor comes the day of vengeance. The day of vengeance is coming. Let me read Revelation 19, verse 15 to 20 to us quickly. Uh, you can either turn there or listen as I read. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of, of God, 
Verse 18, to eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Brothers and sisters, the vengeance of God is coming. But because Christ has canceled the bad news for us, we need not fear. He has given us good news by becoming the news himself. We need not fear about this day. Our response should be praise. Our response should be to worship his name because of what he has done for us. We need not fear the wrath that is to come. Rather, we should proclaim the good news with joy. Tell others about the joy of your salvation. Tell others about what Christ has done in you. As we await his return, let us pray. Father, just as the text reminds us, we come again in worship. Worshiping you for who you are and what you have done. We are unworthy to untie your shoe. We are unworthy to sit beside you. But because of Christ, we can approach the throne of grace. And we are praying that our hearts, that we will be reminded of this daily. That your work for us is permanent. That this news that we have received is permanent. And for those who are yet to, to put their trust in you, would you stir their heart to the glory of your name? We pray in Jesus' name.